Hello, welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Tom Street, and today I'm talking to Tony Irwin, who's an expert in nuclear energy. He spent 30 years building nuclear power plants in the United Kingdom, and now he lives in Australia, and he manages Australia's uh, nuclear research reactor, which he was in charge of building. And he also lectures in at ANU in nuclear science. And um, I'm really happy to have him on the show today because he's such a knowledgeable and experienced person in this field. And uh, I, with people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk coming out in favor of nuclear power, uh, it's something that I've always been very skeptical of and thought that it was probably a really bad idea and a good way to contaminate the planet for the rest of eternity. Uh, but um, yeah, with Bill Gates and Elon Musk and others coming out and saying that this is something that we need to do to climate to combat climate change, I've thought that it's something that I should perhaps know a little bit more about to have an informed opinion as a citizen. Uh, uh, like Bill Gates is building, or he, he at least funds a company that builds uh, small modular research, small modular reactors. Uh, because he obviously believes in that, and um, Elon Musk um, has offered to to go to radioactively contaminated areas and eat locally grown salads, just to try and um, change the debate or open up the debate about how dangerous these um, things actually are. Um, so I didn't, it's not something I really know anything about. I, I assumed that you know th- that radiation was a really really big deal and um that the consequences of contaminating the planet uh just really weren't worth it but um let's hear what tony owen has to say hi tony thanks so much for coming on the show thank you good to be here today so i've always been skeptical like i was saying to you a moment ago of nuclear power and and the risks involved with it and because of a number of high profile people coming out and saying that it is something that we should be doing that that's made me reconsider and, and think that maybe it's something I sh- should understand a bit more about. So can you explain to us what is nuclear radiation? I, I, I've got some idea that you, like in a, in a fusion reactor, take uh, you're splitting, you're, you're splitting these really big molecules of uranium into bits. And then what that, generates energy and then you're left with sort of unstable atoms that let things go flying can you explain to us a bit more about what what's going on there well let's let's go back to looking at radiation because people think radiation always and everywhere dangerous radiation is really dangerous radiation is, is is energy so if we look at the electromagnetic spectrum we can see the energy in visible light. So we, see, we can see light, that's radiation, and that's the part we can see. If we go to longer wavelengths, so the red end of the spectrum, we're then going to an infrared, and then we go into radio waves, your station producing electromagnetic radiation, long wavelengths. And, and these are all what's called non-ionizing in that that sort of radiation, those energy levels don't break up cells in your body. So it's non-ionizing radiation. If we go to the other end of the spectrum, so we go to the blue end of the 
the light spectrum and beyond that into ultraviolet. And then shorter wavelengths, we get into X-rays and then into gamma rays. And these are ionizing radiation. So they, they cause sort of damage to cells. And this is why radiation can be, can be dangerous. Right, so, so ultraviolet is beyond that blue end of the spectrum, right? That you get from the sun and it causes skin cancer. Yeah. Beyond that, you, you start getting to these ionizing radiations. So the earth was formed 4,500 million years ago. And it's all radioactive. It's always been radioactive. This is you know, how it, how it, how it was, was made. So our cells are, have developed a mechanism that causes repair in response to various things that affects the cells, including radiation. So, and the main, but, is the main issue that our DNA gets damaged as opposed to other parts of it? Yeah, the, so the cell gets, gets damaged with high okay. radiation. Yeah. But be, because our body is used to low levels of radiation, it can automatically repair. And it's, it's okay with, with low levels of radiation. So we know that the normal background radiation we get, we measure the absorbed dose of radiation we get in, in a, what's called a sievert. This is a, a measure, a radiation measure. Uh, sieverts are very large units. So we, we talk about millisieverts, which is a thousandth of a, of a, of a sievert. So we get all the time a background dose. And in Australia, it's around about two millisieverts a year. And this comes from cosmic radiation, from the, the ground um, and from food. So anything that's got potassium in it is radioactive. So particularly bananas, bananas are really good. Uh, and Brazil nuts are fantastic. You know, you get okay. really Lots of radiation. And, and this is the same sort of radiation that you would get from a nuclear, nuclear power plant. Yeah, because what, what it does with absorbed dose, it's got a factor in it that, that compensates for whatever sort of radiation it is. So you can, if, you, if you've got a dose in millisieverts, it's done a compensation for whatever it is. So we've got this, this background dose. Uh, the background dose depends on where you live. So the higher up your city is, the more cosmic radiation you get and the mm. higher, higher the dose. So if there was a relationship between low dose levels and cancer, you would see a difference between where people lived and their lifestyles. So for instance, if you do a lot of international travel, flying, an international crew got more radiation dose per year than I did as a radiation worker. I worked for 30 years in the UK operating nuclear power plants. I'd get about two millisieverts a year for operating the plants. An international air crew will get about four millisieverts a year at about twice the background dose because you know, they're, they're higher up, get more cosmic radiation. There's also places in the world with really high background levels. 
if you look up Google uh, Kerala in India, that the background there is about 70 millisieverts a year, but the cancer rate's a third of Australia. So it's, it's not related to these sort of lower levels of, of radiation. Um, comes Ramsar as well in Iran, um, 260 millisieverts a year due to the radium in the water, very high sort of background levels. Okay. And so there's no correlation between living in those places or working as flight crew uh, on, on planes and cancer. And, and cancer, no. Yeah. And the, the other thing to look at is uh, medical exposures because we, we have x-rays. If you have a CT scan, a whole body CT scan is about 10 millisieverts in a single dose in a few seconds. That's three times your annual dose in a few seconds. And this doesn't cause cancer. You know, people who get CT scans then don't get cancers. So there isn't this correlation between low levels of dose and you know, causes of cancer or, or real problems. So if you look at the other end of the sort of radiation, with the evidence from Hiroshima and nuclear accidents, we know that if you have about 5,000 millisieverts, then you've got a 50% chance of, of dying. What, what did you so say, background levels? What were background levels? So background levels about two millisieverts. Okay. 5,000, you've got a good, in a single dose this is, not okay. spread out over a long while, in a single dose, then, then you, you're likely to die. 50% chance of dying, uh, like in, when? I mean, could it, could, couldn't you? No, soon. That? Soon afterwards. Because like the, the radiation is just a short burst that comes and then it disappears. Yeah. So if, if you had a very, very high dose of radiation for a short period. Okay. And it, could it be that, that you could have problems with that down the track or are you likely to see the problems fairly immediately? If you got 5,000, you'll see it quickly. Right. But could I then, you, could I die 10 years or 20 years down the track because of that? I, or, or is it something that's going to cause a, a mutation and a cancer? Uh, well, 5,000 is going to kill you pretty quickly. I, I thought you said the, it was 50, the, 50% sort of, oh. Yeah, 50% chance of death. Now, when you get down to about 1,000, that's when there's a possibility of radiation sickness. So if you get a big dose of 1,000, so you can see these sort of levels are a long way away from anything that we have normally. So, you know, this people get very worried about radiation, but the sort of levels that we're exposed to, I mean, even in the Fukushima accident, you know, people were not exposed to anything lightly sort of levels. Even the radiation workers there, um, you know, they they didn't get anything like that sort of level that's going to cause a, a, a real problem. Mm. So, so this, like for them, do, do we have any statistics on whether the Fukushima workers have increased rates of cancer or, or not? So that the, um, 
the various international bodies have, have, have looked at the doses that the Fukushima workers and the public got, and they don't think there'll be any increased cancers from the sort of low levels of, of doses that they got at all. There won't be any increased deaths from, from Fukushima. Okay. And, and, and that, I guess that's something they're monitoring carefully. And, and Yes. And so and, far... Um, what, what they've been doing is, is um, looking at, you know, survivors from Chernobyl. So that was in 86. So they've got a lot of records from Chernobyl. This what's called the Chernobyl Tissue Bank in the, in the UK, which, which takes tissue samples from people who've, you know, have, have had high exposures and looks at them for, for, for signs of, of cancers. So there's, there's a lot of really evidence to say that um, you need a pretty heavy dose before you get any chance of, of, of cancers. Okay, so, so it's, not, it's not like you get a, you, you maybe you increase your exposure by 10 or 20 times and then you that increases your chance of cancer? You, what, what, do it, does it have to be a hundred or a thousand times before you're so, cancer? Yeah, right. so there's what's called the linear no threshold model for, for radiation. So this is a, this is a very conservative model that's, that's used worldwide to, to limit radiation doses. And this assumes there is no threshold level. So it says, here's the levels we've got from Hiroshima with the risk of cancer. We'll extrapolate these down to, to zero so that any dose will have some effect. But below 100, this model doesn't work. Now, there's, there's, there's no evidence that below 100 millisieverts in a, in a single dose is going to be a, a problem. Um, so uh, what, what about in around Chernobyl? Have they, have they like people living outside of the exclusion zone or Kiev? Had, have they registered any higher levels of cancer rates there? No. 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 Okay. So the, the problem in, in any nuclear accident is immediately afterwards, there's a release of iodine. So iodine is one of the fission products from the nuclear reaction. It, it's a gas, so it's dispersed easily. It's highly radioactive and it heads for your thyroid. So it concentrates in your thyroid gland um, and can give you quite a, a big dose. Because it's got a very short half-life, it, it's more dangerous. People think, that you know, radioactive things that have got a very long half-life are very dangerous. But the longer the half-life, the less dangerous it is because the, the less amount of radioactivity is coming out of it. So iodine has got a half-life of, of eight days. So it is quite concentrated and will we'll go for the thyroid. It decays exponentially. So 10 half-lives, it's all gone. So 80 days after a nuclear accident, all the iodine has decayed away right. and is no, is no longer you know, a problem. But because it's decaying so quickly, it's releasing radiation quickly. 
Yes. And, and, it, and the problem with iodine is it goes for a particular gland. It goes for the thyroid. Okay. So, so it can so cause thyroid, thyroid cancer. Now, right. thyroid cancer is quite easily, um, you know, sort of treated. So people survive from thyroid cancer, usually. Now, there's, there's much less chance. The other one that's released in an accident, you've probably heard of, is cesium. Now, cesium has got a much longer half-life, 30-year um, half-life. So cesium will be around for 300 years, 10 half-lives. So there's still cesium around from bomb tests and, and Chernobyl accident. So the ground near Chernobyl will have cesium in it. But because it's got a longer half-life and it doesn't concentrate anywhere in the body particularly, it's less of a hazard. So it doesn't head for any particular organ in your body. Yeah, okay. So, um, so are you able to say how much humans um, have increased the background level of radiation on, on, on Earth from bomb testing and nuclear accidents? Yeah. So I've got some figures. And the bomb tests are by far the worst. So the, we talk about becquerels of, of radioactivity. So this is sort of one decay a second. So it's a very small unit. So we, we talk about um, multiples of, of becquerels. So the bomb tests in the 1960s released 675,000 petabecquerels, so petri is 10 to the 15 becquerels of iodine-131. So that's 380 times what was released from Chernobyl in iodine. In so all of the bomb tests? In the bomb tests, yeah. So huge amounts of iodine, but of course that's all gone now from the 1960s. Yeah. Yep. That's all gone. Uh, cesium, um, cesium-137, 648 rolls released from the bomb tests. So that's 11 times Chernobyl. So the, the remnants of that are still around. So we've still got cesium from bomb tests in the, in the 1960s. It's decayed. You know, it's, it's more than one half-life decayed, but it, 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 it's still around. Okay, and, and so how much does that increase my exposure to radiation in my daily life? Well, because that's dispersed really around the world, it doesn't affect you. Okay. You know, your, your background level is determined by, by what you eat and where you live. Okay. And, and if you go on trips to Bali. <laughs> uh, so that's, it's minuscule compared to the levels of natural radiation that are just yes. yeah. in the environment. Okay. Yes. So it's, it's not even one percent, or no. 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 Okay. And it, well, say say we had like exploded all of the nuclear weapons that 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 exist on the planet today. Would in the in the long term would there would there be um, a, a problem with the radioactivity that that would release onto the planet? No, because it's decaying all the time. You see. 
So the the iodine decays quickly. Okay, so, so there'd be an immediate there'd be an immediate problem with the radiation, especially around where the bombs were exploded. Yes, but in the long term, yeah. it wouldn't mean that no. people would be dying from increased rates of cancer. No, no, no. So, so it's, it's still very low levels. Okay, unless you're very close to it and get a one of these a thousand millisievert doses or or a very big dose. Otherwise, no, you don't. You don't get anything. Okay, but it, but Chernobyl, the, like there's quite a large area around where the Chernobyl power nuclear power plant was that's still quite dangerous for people. Well, it's not dangerous in that you know you you can stand there. Yeah, I mean some people still live there. Okay, in the like, exclusion zone. In the exclusion you know, zone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know this. If you Google it, you'll see videos of. Of old ladies, you know, who still live there. Um, I know, and the, and the the yearly dose isn't sufficient to cause a, a, a big problem. Right, but they, I mean, they were talking about Russian soldiers digging trenches there, and then that they thought yeah. they'd have radiation sickness. No, no. I mean, the, the IAEA have been there since. They've they've done checks on on what the sort of levels are. They they they're saying levels around six millisieverts in a year, so no, it's not going to cause any radiation sickness or any problems do, like. Do you that. know what I'm talking about? How they were reporting about the the trench digging by Russian yes, soldiers yeah. recently. That's, so, that's why the agency went to look at it. Okay, so they, sure they so that was like they were hypothesizing there was going to be a problem. Then they inspected it and they said no, actually, they're they're no. going to be fine. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, the levels are nowhere near what would be a, a problem. Okay. So so why is there still an exclusion zone there? Because th th there's this sort of conservative approach that says that the public should be limited to not more than one millisievert a year in additional dose from a nuclear facility. So, okay. if, you know, if, if there is, there's still cesium in the ground there, there'll be more than one millisievert a year in background dose additional. And were you saying that we received but two on average? We, we, we received two. You know, you're receiving two. Okay. Two right. millisieverts a year just from, you know, right. where you and live. If I, if I worked as a, on, on an aeroplane, as, as an You'd have an additional I'd four. If you were. I'd be getting six a year. Yeah. You get a six, and but there's no. But you, I mean, if you have a if you have a CT scan, you'd have an additional ten. Okay, right. So, so that's the, much more than I'd get from living within the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Yeah, I mean, the, there's people living there who are probably getting perhaps twenty millisieverts a year, say, okay. which which is what I was allowed as a nuclear worker. That's not going to give them a problem, you know that. They're quite, they'll, they can live there okay. There's not going to be any, any increased risk at that sort of, uh, sort of levels. So I don't know if alcohol is a good analogy or how it works. Because I've, I've, I've heard it said that there's no safe level of alcohol consumption. I don't know if that's true. Like if, if you have just a, a drip of alcohol every day, I don't know if that increases your cancer risk 
I think most people, or, or does the body process it so effectively that it actually doesn't really, it doesn't increase yes. at all, even minutely your, your risk of cancer. And if- and, No, because the body has, has got mechanisms to, to adapt to, to sort of low levels of, of interference with cells. It can do that okay. So, yeah, if it's below a certain threshold, it copes with it so effectively that the risks are, are yes. basically nothing. I, I don't yes. know, maybe a more visual analogy is, say, if I have a boulder that, I, that I'm holding above me, if it's, if it's a small boulder, then I can just, my muscles are big enough to just place that on the ground. But if it's a huge boulder, at a certain point, I'm not going to be able to hold it anymore and it's going to crush me. And I, you know, it overwhelms my yes. capacity to deal with that problem. Is that so well? The, is that a... well the, 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 there's one way of, of looking at this. That see, what people say is that any any level of radiation is dangerous. One way you can look at it is say, I've got a one ton boulder. I drop it on you. You've got a very high chance of dying with one ton dropped on you. If I break that one ton up into a thousand tiny particles and spread it over 10,000 people, then there's the theory says, well, one of them will die. But it's, in, you know, if you think about it, actually, it's not yeah. going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's the analogy for it, you know, that, that very, very low levels still give you some effect, but all the practical experience says, no, it won't. Right. Okay. Um, so if, if, yeah, so it, it might actually be a good, a good thing to spread. Like, say you have something like the, the radiation from Chernobyl, which may be a little bit of a problem, you spread it around more, it's going to be less of an issue potentially. Um, yeah, if, if you were one of the, the liquidators that was working sort of right on the top of the reactor and you've seen pictures of them shuffling fuel back into the reactor and, and they're getting, you know, 100, 200 millisievert dose, then they're likely to see some effect. But people that have got much lower doses will not see okay. any effects. So, so if, we, if we reduce background levels of radiation to zero, We'd still see the same levels of cancer. Cancer is being caused by other issues. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so one in one in two people in New South Wales will get cancer by the time they're eighty-five. Yeah, but it, because of there's genetic effects, there's effects from environment, there's effects from living. You know, people uh -huh. smoke, or you know, this uh, there might be chemicals. There's a variety uh, of other things cause damage to DNA apart from radiation. Oh yeah. 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 So radiation is a very small part of, of any cancer risk. So something I saw a while ago that um, some radioactive waste, I believe from, I think maybe from reactor cores in, in power plants is being dumped into the ocean. Like they found special yeah. places to dump um, they just roll it off the back of ships. Um, and that, that seems like a terrible, terrible thing to do to me. Uh, 
what do you think are the but, consequences of that? Well, let, let, let's look at um, the, the example that's in the news at the moment, which is the, the radioactive water being dumped from the Fukushima plant. Okay. So people, you know, immediately say, well, that sounds terrifying. We're dumping radioactive water from this damaged plant. So and, then, and it, it spreads must, all over the world and goes into shellfish and then we it eat It must the be causing all sorts of problems. So if you actually look at it, so the, the water that's used to cool the, the damaged reactors becomes radioactive as it passes through the, the damaged reactors. And they have to keep cooling water on the, the reactors all the while. But then that treated water is, is treating a system that removes all of the radioactive elements except tritium. Now, tritium is an isotope of hydrogen. So hydrogen has got one proton. Deuterium, which you probably know as heavy water, has got one proton plus a neutron. So it's an isotope. Um, tritium is one proton plus two neutrons. So it's an isotope of, of hydrogen. So the reason it's difficult to separate it is that it's chemically the same as water because you know hydrogen oxide and tritium oxide are, are chemically the same. So it's very difficult to do. So tritium is a, is, um, a very low energy emitter of, of radiation. Um, it's got a half-life of 12 years. It's got a biological half-life, so it passes through your body in about 10 days and it decays to a, a non-radioactive helium particle. So tritium's present in, in, in the atmosphere in, in water anyway, to some percent. So um, the World Health Organization standard for drinking water is 10,000 becquerels a litre. So that's you know, that's the sort of natural maximum tritium level that's pr proposed in drinking water. And that's not going to cause any problems to you. Now, the water, the standard for the release of this water at Fukushima, the Japanese standard is 1,500 becquerels per litre. So that's what a seventh of drinking water standard before they discharge it. So the, the level is in, incredibly low. Okay, so that was, if that was in the water supply here in Canberra, the authorities wouldn't be concerned about that level? No. Okay. In fact, the Australian level is a lot higher. It's 76,000 megawatts a litre. The Australian limit is actually. Oh, okay. But, it, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's normally quite, quite low levels. Now, the, the problem at Fukushima is they've got um, a, a lot of, uh, of this tritiated water. Um, they've got 890 terabecquerels on, on the site. And they, because it's, it's got to be, re, you know, um, diluted down to this incredibly low figure, a seventh of drinking water, it's going to take 30 years to discharge all this, all this water a little at a time. And this is the problem because we look at 
the sort of low levels they've got in Japan and say, well, that's really good having low levels of limits, but it isn't really because you cause other problems. You know, you've, you've got all this on site and you could be getting rid of it quite easily with no problems. If you look at international experience, say the um, nuclear power plant I last work, worked in, in the, the UK, Hesham, that had a limit of 1,200 terabecrolls a year. So this, this 890 by international standards is, is not a lot anyway. Um, Canada, 1,971 terabecrolls a year. Um, the French reprocessing plant at La Hague, 13,000. So that the 890 by international standards isn't, isn't a high level. And, and by very, very conservatively treating it, you know, they're giving themselves a 30-year problem, whereas it could be done in a few years mm. and it wouldn't affect anybody at, at all. Okay. Now, other countries are saying, oh, water discharge, you know, it's a big problem. But, um, you know, South Korea have been complaining. Well, South Korea released more than that from their nuclear power plants. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a bit disingenuous in, in a way. Now, the, the, the Japan have asked the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Authority, to, to, um, to sort of look at uh, review their plans for release, et cetera. Um, and they've sort of said, well, look, you know, you can do this. It's very conservative. It should be. It's no problem uh, at all. But again, you know, the very, very conservative limits in Japan um, are not really in line with international experience and, and give some unnecessary problems, really. Right. Well, so... <laughs> it just about answers my all my questions but to take it to the extreme say that we really tried to cause a really massive issue so we created all the nuclear waste we could or took all of the nuclear waste that we've got from nuclear power plants and just spread it with crop dusters all over the planet what would what would what would the impact of that be <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it comes down to what the dose is. Okay. You know, um, and you have to have a lot of nuclear material to get the sort of doses we're, we're worried about. Right. Um, so if it was, I was getting out enough, you're saying it, it, it might be okay, but it, if people were unlucky enough to yeah. get a concentrated blob. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, really if you take spent fuel out of the reactor. Yeah. You could take a fuel element out of the reactor. When you've got a new fuel element, you can hold it. You can stand by it. You know, a uranium new fuel element is not dangerous at all. Okay. Um, once it's been in the reactor, it's highly radioactive and it's hot. So everybody puts it in a cooling pond initially. And the, the, the cooling water takes away the heat and it provides shielding from the radiation. So it stays in there for a few years. And then you've got various alternatives of what, what to do with it for disposal, you know, long, longer term. Well, there's people that say that we've got no good solution for 
permanent storage for this stuff with massive long half-lives. What, what do you think about that? So all this spent fuel initially goes into the cooling pond, but after that, you've got really four options to, to deal with it. You can either take it out of the cooling pond and, and put it in what's called a dry cask, which is a, it's a massive steel cask. Um, and it can stay there for a for hundred years and, and decay. So it gets down to lower levels. You can reprocess it. So all the fuel from Lucas Heights, from the old HIFAR reactor, went to France, reprocessed. And then what you get back is um, the recycled waste. So it's reduced volume, it's um, reduced time to, to decay. It's in a vitrified form. So it's in a, it's in a, a sort of better form. And you've recycled the uranium, et cetera, from it. So you can Does that mean you've that. extracted some ura uranium that wasn't uh, used up in the yes. in early process and then you use yeah. that again? Yeah. Okay. Because most of a fuel element that's been used is still uranium. So you can re reuse that and you can use, reuse the plutonium as well that's produced. Okay. That's, it, but it's, it's that's not, used in what's called mixed oxide fuel. And the French, the French reprocess all their fuel immediately and put it back in the reactor as MOX fuel. And they, they recycle everything. So it's, it's a quite yeah, a, is, it, is it because it, like so much uranium gets used up, like um, undergoes fusion? And, and, and then there's fission, fission, fission. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but there's a certain amount that doesn't, doesn't get used, but because the, the, the concentration of it has reduced, it's not concentrated enough. And that's why you have to stop using that fuel. No, let's I have to go back a step. Okay. So natural uranium um, is, is mainly uranium 238, which isn't fissile. It's only got 0.7% of uranium 235 that is the, the actual fissile part of it. So because there's so little 235 in what's called enrich it uranium to use in a, in a water reactor. So we, we enrich it to about 5%. So after it's been in the reactor, it comes out and it's probably about 1%. So we only use a few percent of the actual energy in the uranium in, in a normal water reactor that we normally use um so, so we can we can recycle that, you've used that four percent then you got one percent left and is that what you're recycling the one percent yes yeah we recycle well you recycle it, it all with the, the 238 and the 235 you, you recycle it okay all of that so the other way to use for use fuel is deep geological disposal so that's, that's the one that's um, being built in Sweden and Finland at, at, at the moment. Um, so this is 500 meters underground. Um, so it, it can be kept safe there for, for 100,000 years because it's in deep granite underground. There's another interesting one that's being developed called deep isolation in the US and that's borehole technology. Because with modern mining methods now, we can drill down and then turn the drill and it goes horizontally. Mm. So what, what we can do now is, is to, to drill down, go horizontal, and then insert 
a waste fuel canister down a borehole and store it horizontally. And that's, you know, a lot better method than having to excavate out to 500 meters deep to, to do it. So uh, actually CSIRO in, the, in Australia are looking at borehole technology. And I, I think this could well be a, a useful future technology for us. Okay. Yeah, and that sounds like it would be difficult to extract from there, which maybe would... No, they've, they've demonstrated putting it in and taking it out again. Oh, okay. Well. Oh, okay, is that better? They've had to do that for the, for the regulator to demonstrate that it's, it is retrievable. Oh, okay. Why, why would you want to retrieve it? Well, at, at the moment, I think regulators are, are, are looking at um, sort of waste being retrievable if, if required. Okay. I, I don't think it'll be you want to retrieve it. I think you want to to what, bury it. Well, something I've, I've heard said is, is you know, maybe you store it down this 500-metre deep hole in granite like they're doing in Scandinavia. Uh, but, you know, the, the whole of human civilization is, you know, we've been, what, living, doing agriculture and... Um, living in cities for, I don't know, what, 4,000, 5,000 years, something like that, 10,000 years maybe. Um, and the half-life of this radiation is, I don't know, meant hundreds of thousands of years? I don't know how, how long. So, so, I mean, is this something we should be worried about, that, you know, countries come and go, wars get fought, someone will dig it up and then spread it around. Maybe they don't even understand what they're dealing with. Are we, are we creating something that could potentially jeopardize future generations and for thousands of years? Well, the, there'll be precautions when you, you do this sort of thing. Um, if you look at a, a whole fuel assembly, um, to get decay back to the level of the original uranium ore, which is the usual standard people look at, um, takes about 120,000 years. But remember that it's decaying exponentially um, and a lot of the short-lived decays very quickly. So, you know, at, at these very long timescales, the amount of radioactivity is, is very, very small still. Mm. So. Yeah. So initially it's a lot more dangerous to be around than it is yes. down the track. And yeah. The, and the, and, and the, yeah, so it's giving off a lot of radiation and it goes down and down and down and down. Yeah, it goes, goes down. Yeah, okay. Exponentially. Right, so, so maybe someone might dig it up in 100 years or 1,000 years' time and maybe it's poison enough to poison them if they were around it, but if you spread it around a lot, it wouldn't be such a big risk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that I don't think people realise is that the spent fuel is the only high-level waste produced. Um, normal reactor operation, the day-to-day -day operation, only produces low-level waste. So this is things like clothing, cleaning materials, filters, resins, etc. Um, so uh, that low-level waste is just packed into drums and then stored. 
and then put in a low level repository, which is like the one they're building in South Australia or going to build in South Australia. So it's, it's a near surface. It isn't a, you don't have to have a deep repository because it'll all be decayed in 300 years at the, at the maximum. So this is, this is sort of low level waste. So you just put it in drums. So a, a big power reactor will, will generate about two shipping containers of low level waste a year. So not a lot of, of waste compared to a lot of industrial processes. This is, this is very, very sort of little waste. Okay. Um, so I think people get very worried about waste, but it's, it's actually the, the amounts are, are very, very small. And it's actually one of the industries that, that does manage the waste. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's highly regulated. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And when you say it'll be gone in 300 years, that's, that's, it'll have over, over that process will be half and then half and then half. And then yeah, half again. again, it's yeah, exponential and it's still, still a very yeah. small amount there, but it's minuscule. Yes. It's not that it's completely gone, but it's just halving every half-life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I think that answers all my, my danger related questions, but if you're okay with it, could we, talk a little bit about economics of of um nuclear power well did you want to look at the safety of nuclear power plants before you you go on to economics oh, okay well, you, how yeah, we okay. how we make them safe because <laughs> I, I think that's that's the first question that people always ask the, the first question is safety the second is is what about the waste well so yeah the, the, okay. the way we, we the way we make them safe, the, f the first thing is you've got to stop the, the fission process, the chain reaction in a nuclear power plant. So that's, that's the easy bit. We put in a control rod, it absorbs neutrons, it stops the chain reaction and, and the reactor shuts down. So even, even at Fukushima with that huge earthquake, all the control rods inserted, the reactor shut down. But the problem then is that because of this radioactive decay, it's still producing heat, even when shut down from all the fission products decaying. So we've got to get rid of the heat. So what happened at Fukushima is they couldn't get rid of the heat, then the core melts, and then you've, you know, you've got other problems. So, Traditional reactors, to get rid of the heat, what they have is, is pumps and water storage, and you put cooling water into the reactor and, and you know, sort of keep, keep it cool. So, And that's how you're you generating need, the energy, right? Like you, you're heating up water and then you run a steam turbine with the heat. Yeah, and that's, so that's what you're trying to do is generate heat and then and use that energy. Yeah, in, in the reactor, but when it's shut down, you want to remove the heat so that it doesn't, the core doesn't melt. Because if, if oh, you okay. don't remove if you, the heat, if you have an incident, you mean, and, and you just want to stop everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the traditional way is, is pumps uh, and water supplies. So it's, it's all outside the sort of reactor and it depends on, on diesel supplies if you haven't got the grid supplies, et cetera. So what, what they have with modern reactors is what they call passive cooling systems. 
So instead of needing pumps, they use water fed by gravity or pressurized tanks that it can inject water into to the reactor or um, passive heat exchangers where the water just, you know, hot water rises so it's, it can be removed that way. And these can all be within the reactor, it's containment itself. So this, this is how modern reactors are much safer nowadays. Uh, and a modern reactor would have survived even Fukushima. Yeah, okay. Because its cooling system is all within the reactor system. So, so this th is all, this, uh, all every, this is like every reactor made today by, by uh, China, Russia, wherever. Yeah, everybody's got, most people have got a combination of active and passive safety systems now an emergency cooling system. So the, the latest Chinese reactors has, has got passive systems as well as, as active systems. So every, everybody uses this sort of technology to make sure it is, is safe. But the modern small modular reactors sort of take it to another level because, because they're so much smaller, it's so much easier to remove the heat. So an example is the new scale US one that's been deployed shortly. And, and that's got a, a reactor module that sits in a big pool of water um, that can always keep it cool. So it, it's cooled indefinitely without any operator action, without any electrical supplies, etc. So th this is the level of safety we're aiming at, at for, for modern reactors. Okay, so the, you don't have to do anything. The, the heat's been dissipated through the nature of the thing it's contained in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, unless you've got anything else to say about the, the, the safety things with reactors, um, what what do you, what do you say to the people that say that the the economics of it don't stack up? That it's that it's cheaper just to build solar and wind and perhaps pumped hydro um, for our power needs. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can have renewables, wind, solar, um, hydro, batteries, etc. Um, what I suggest your, your listeners do is, is to look at two websites, which I think are really interesting. There's electricitymap.org. Okay. Electricitymap.org. Yeah. And the other one is opennem.org.au. The electricity map is really interesting because you can, you can go around the whole world and look at individual countries and look at their generation mix and look at their emissions and see who's really been successful at, at low emissions. Okay. And what you find is that the countries that are successful have either got sort of unlimited hydro, like, like Norway, or have got uh, nuclear. And that the ones that aren't successful continuously or reliably are the ones with very high renewables, like Germany. So Germany 
if the wind's really blowing strong, it's good. If it isn't, then they're importing, you know, from Poland and Russian gas, etc., and things. So there's this problem with with the reliability uh, of renewables and and how you can have enough. So in Australia, say we had, um, we wanted to go to 100% renewables. So what, what you'd have to do is to be able to generate enough when you'd got renewables to be able to last for the times when you hadn't. And, and what you find when you do the, the analysis, when you look at the models, is that the amount of excess generation you have to have to generate enough to be able to store it, to use it when you don't, it is enormous. So for instance, I looked at some figures of replacing New South Wales coal with, with solar. To replace the current solar, to replace the current generation, just, just what actually generation, not the, the capacity of the, the coal, is, is about $34 billion worth of solar plants to do that. And that's just the generation. Then, then you've got to have the storage for that, which has got to last for, for several days. Um, and then you've got the cost of the transmission as well. So although you look at solar and solar is say around a thousand dollars a kilowatt installed capacity. Nuclear is 5,000. So nuclear is five times the cost of solar. But then you look at the capacity factor difference, the lifetime difference, the storage, the transmission. And if you look at economics on a system basis, then, then nuclear comes out at least equal to renewables. Mm. And I think this is the problem at the moment is that people just look at the simple sort of base cost of solar and say it's incredibly cheap. Whereas when you use it in the system, it can be quite expensive as you go to high levels. At the moment, we, we can accommodate the solar with, with no problem. Um, when you look at the open NEM, for instance, if, if you look at South Australia today, now South Australia's got a huge amount of wind, 2000 megawatts of wind. Only 18% of it is working today because there's very low wind. So it's 31% gas to support that now, plus imports from, from, from Victoria. There's 40% solar at the moment, but it's just going now. It's, it's gone, you know, and you're, you're back to gas if you've got no wind. So it's, it's not a long-term sustainable sort of process that you've got. But the, the, the other big, my other big concern with, with renewables is sustainability. Because if you look at the amount of materials that's required for, for solar and wind compared to nuclear, these huge amounts of, of 
um, say concrete. If you look at a wind turbine, it's got a it's got a base that's got about one thousand five hundred tons of concrete in the base of the turbine. You've got a hundred meter high concrete tower, steel and concrete tower. So it's about five times the amount of, of a nuclear power plant. Mm. Well, and, and the same for solar. With all the environmental consequences that come along. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, then if you look at some of the, the materials that's required, you know, you've got things like rare earths, you've got cobalt, uh, cobalt comes from the Congo, um, huge environmental concerns about the way it's mined there. So I think all this sustainability part of renewables, again, is, is not really examined. And it's again, it's a case of if you take the whole of the whole of life cycle approach to it, um, then you can see it's not it's not all wonderful. I mean, renewables definitely should play a part in the energy mix, but it's it's getting the right mix for the future that's that's important. And I think increasingly, a lot of countries are finding that nuclear is a good part of of the energy mix. So perhaps twenty percent for Australia would be a, a good basis. Mm. That, that helps. Remember that. Yeah, I mean, people don't realise that all the currently operating solar and wind will have to be replaced before 2050 because of the lifetime of the plant. You know, we look at 2050 as this net zero, but everything will have to be replaced. And that's another huge cost. Do, do nuclear power plants have a longer life? Than Much longer. 60-year yeah. life they're designed for, mm. whereas, you, you know, you're talking about 20 years for, for a, at the maximum for a solar plant. Okay. Well, I, the other thing I, that people bring up is nuclear proliferation. So if we're, we're taking nuclear power to, to different countries, is, um, and, and, and what I've heard is that uh, the, the fuel is... It's so much less concentrated with the, the uranium two. I, I forget which type of uranium isotope it is that that you need to. Two three five is the the fission one. Yeah. Right. So you've only got you're saying five percent for for nuclear in a power, power reactor. Yes. And then, and then yeah. in a nuclear bomb, it's more like ninety eight. Or is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, so you're way 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 off a. So, and, that, and that and that process between five percent and and ninety eight percent is is somewhat complicated and difficult to do. Um, yeah, so this is the enrichment process and people, um, the, the standard process is to use centrifuges and it's, you know, it's a tightly held technology and it's quite, it's quite difficult to get a sort of effective centrifuge technology to do that. But is that not a big leg up getting, getting the 5% um, uranium or it, it doesn't really help well, much? Well, it's, it's in the form of um, uranium dioxide as fuel. Okay. So you, you, you can't centrifuge dioxide. You, you've got to get back to the uranium hexafluoride, which is the way you use it in a, a centrifuge, in, a, in a, a gaseous form in the centrifuge. So 
you, you can't take ordinary reactor fuel and and enrich it right it, like it, that would be quite a complicated process is that what you're saying well you've got to go back you've got to go back to the uranium hexafluoride stage to to be able to do that so, and, and you need a complicated plant to do it so do you think the the, the proliferation concerns uh don't are ungrounded there's very tight controls on nuclear materials worldwide. So the IAEA is the, the sort of world's policeman for, for nuclear materials. Uh, and, you know, they, all the countries are signed up to the non-proliferation treaty and they all get inspected by the IAEA for, for all their nuclear materials and have to account for sort of every gram of, of nuclear material that they've got. So, you know, it becomes obvious if you've got people that are, are trying to divert it for, for military use instead of for, for, for civil use. So there's, you know, there's, there's a very good policing system worldwide to deal with any proliferation risks. Okay. But Right, but it sounds like you, you you're saying that there is, it is maybe, they, they are policing it because it it could be used for that. You yes. Know, yeah. I mean, th th there's two ways you can sort of go towards a a bomb. You can either um, enrich the uranium to, as you say, very high levels, greater than ninety percent, or you can produce plutonium in a nuclear reactor. Now. The thing with plutonium is it's, plutonium is produced in, in every power reactor, but normally it's produced and it's also burned because it's a fuel within the reactor itself. So most reactors are shut down to refuel with an interval of about you know, one year, 18 months. And at that time, the plutonium is, is contaminated with other isotopes of plutonium plus other, other materials. So it's unsuitable for a bomb. So the only way you can make a bomb with, with plutonium is to have a reactor where you can take the fuel out very quickly, like an unload refueling one, and you take it out within weeks rather than leave it in there. And that, in that way, you can generate plutonium. So it's obvious if you're doing that sort of thing, if you've got a reactor that's unload refueling and it's, it's, it's changing fuel very rapidly, then it's obvious that you know, you're, you're producing plutonium. Okay. I, yeah, I guess, well, like it seems not knowing much about it that, it, that if you had lots and lots and lots of countries around the world switching over to having some nuclear power, in their country that there's just going to be a lot more for to keep track of in terms of that sort of stuff if, if people are harvesting plutonium or diverting nuclear fuel um well you know the, where the fuel is you know how much it is and you know a country starting a new nuclear power program for instance united arab emirates is one of the last countries to start a new nuclear power program and what they said when they started it was, we agree that we won't enrich, we won't reprocess, 
So they they have their fuel delivered ready to go into the reactor as sort of 5% fuel. Um, and they won't reprocess it afterwards. So this this is the sort of standard that that these countries are, are adopting now. You know, they're saying we don't want to be involved in in the in any sort of proliferation type of activities. We, we just want to be able to generate the power without any problems. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that's all that I can think to ask on on those on those sort of topics. Uh, <laughs> do, do you have anything else that that you'd like to say about safety or economics or proliferation, Tony? Mm, no, I think we've covered about everything. Um, the only the only other one you haven't sort of covered you were interested in was was transport. So, you know, we, we transport nuclear materials around the world all the time. And because it has to go between countries, there's actually uh, internationally agreed standards for, for transport. Um, and, you know, there, there haven't been any accidents for in, in nuclear transport, even, even with spent fuel transports you know, around, around the world. So, again, it's, it's highly regulated and... Um, and highly coordinated worldwide. Yeah, I I guess my um, my biggest concern was how how catastrophic the consequences were of an accident because I I feel like that's sooner or later something's going to go wrong and so that's why my Look, main main interest is what are the consequences if you start spreading yes. radiation around. Um, yeah. So if it's fresh fuel, there isn't really any problem. Even if you you drop it, you break it open, um, it, it's just uranium or slightly enriched. So that, that's not a problem. So the, the only possible problem is, is with spent fuel. So to transport spent fuel, they transport it in, in special casks. Yeah. So these casks are tested they do drop tests on them. They do a fire test. They do a water test. There's, a, if you Google it, there's a beautiful video in a test in the UK where they, they ran a loco into a, a big test at 100 mile an hour, and the loco was scrapped, but the the casks survived. A, a, lo a loco, a locomotive. Locomotive. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. The diesel so loco going at 100 mile an hour. Um, and they just left a cask in the on the middle of the railway line. So pretty yeah. solid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're very very solid casks, yeah. and they have to to do all these tests. So, you know, even if you dropped it off the back of the lorry, it, it's not going to open. It's you know it's not going to cause a catastrophic failure. So, can we talk a little bit about your background in the in the industry? Um, so you used to run nuclear power plants or, or maybe several? Yeah. yeah? So I, I graduated in electrical power engineering in, in the UK um, and joined the Central Electricity Board in, in the UK. And they were responsible for all generation, grid transmission, everything in, in the UK. It was a, um, you know, a government 
government organization. So I, I did a, a two-year graduate training and at the end of it, they asked me what I'd like to do. And I said nuclear, because at the time, the UK was building all these nuclear power plants. So I spent 30 years um, commissioning and operating big nuclear power plants in, in the UK. Um, had a lot of fun. Um, and then I married an Australian. So um, in 1999, came out to Australia and I joined ANSTO uh, initially in the government and public affairs section. So I was advising the government on, on uh, nuclear issues. I also was the, um, you know, sort of managed fuel. So I, I bought new fuel and I, I was project managed for a couple of spent fuel shipments to, to France to use, use fuel. And then Opal got its um, construction license. And be, probably because of all my commission experience in the UK, I was appointed as reactor manager. So I was reactor manager for Opal during the initial commissioning and, and all the early operation. What's, and then, sorry, what's Opal? Opal is the research reactor at, at Lucas Heights. Oh, okay. The, the, the new one. Yeah. Um, so it was commissioned in 2006. Right. So that's the one that produces medical isotopes, does silicon irradiation, um, beam research. It's a multi-purpose. It's one of the best in the world. It's a, it's a really top-class research uh, reactor. So since retiring from them, I've got sort of three jobs. I've, the main one is the ANU. So I'm, I'm the sort of principal lecturer for nuclear reactors and nuclear fuel cycle. Um, on the master's courses at the ANU, and we, we're also doing courses for defence, of course, now. And then I'm, I'm chair of Engineers Australia Nuclear Engineering Panel in, in Sydney, um, and I'm technical director of SMR Nuclear Technology, which is this small modular reactor technology company that, that uh, we established in 2012 that's hoping to bring nuclear power to Australia. Okay. With your own modular reactors or importing other people's? Imported. Initially, it'll be imported ones until we get the industry established here. Okay. Um, but part of the, so do you think that it's something that, that we should be building? Because I, I thought part of the reason why it's more modular reactors, uh, people were going for them, apart from the safety, was that you could mass produce them and... Yes, uh, and factory so they, build, and and that makes that makes them cheaper. So, yeah, yeah yes. Australia isn't well known for its manufacturing industries. I mean, we, well, we, we yeah, we could just import the reactor part of it and build the rest of the plant. What we're pushing is replacing retiring coal-fired stations with these. Okay, because that would be a really good idea because you've got all the transmission connections. You've got all the infrastructure on site, the cooling water, you can reuse a lot of the buildings and you've got the staff because you've got highly trained staff that operate a coal fire station. Most of the plant on a nuclear power station is the same, you know, turbines, et cetera, pumps, heat exchangers, air compressors. It's all, it's all the same sort of plant. So you can retrain the staff, which is what we did in the UK. We retrained people from coal fire stations. So that's what we'd like to see. Okay. 
so yeah, I guess you're like crunching numbers and stuff at the moment and putting forward. Yeah. Uh, so if you look on our website, SMR Nuclear, um, you can you can see the papers we've produced for making a case for SMRs in in Australia. Okay. Well, I've I've taken up a lot of your time. It's been extremely interesting, and uh, you've given um, some great uh, information. Um, so. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Tony. Thank you. It's been. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm not in person this time, but no, no, thanks so sometime much. Sometime in the future. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> if you're in Canberra and, and able to come on, that would be great. Well, I, I I do come down because we run our um, lectures in sort of intensive mode, so I, I'm normally down there for a, a week, and uh, and I normally arrive on a Sunday to start Monday morning. So possible I might be able to see you again sometime. Okay, well, that'd be fantastic. And, and if your listeners have got any questions, you, know, you can forward them to me. Or... Okay, I'll put it out there to people to send us questions. Okay. Um, Good to meet you. Likewise, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tony. Right. Okay, bye-bye. Right. If you've got any nuclear science-related questions that you'd like to be put to Tony next time he comes on the show, you can send them through to me via our Facebook page. Just search for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And if you want to check out the websites that he mentioned, I'll put those in the description for the podcast that you should be able to see on your podcast app below the at this podcast. Okay, I'll catch you next time. Bye.